Well, don't turn to Job just yet. I want to draw your attention to Luke 18. If you would take your Bible, please, and turn with me to Luke 18. Uh, We sort of ran out of time last time. That never happens, Terry, does it? We never go long. We never run out of time. Um, You'd think after all these years of experience, we'd never do that. But uh, I want to draw your attention to Luke 18 because Luke 18 uh, puts forth the exact same picture that we saw in Job last time. Um, it's, it's a little more overt than Job, and that's why I want to bring you here. And then uh, once we kind of um, hang out in, in Luke 18 for a little bit, then we'll go back to the book of Job where we left off last time, and, and hopefully you'll see the connection here. Uh, scripture from Genesis to Revelation is unanimous in this point. There are only two ways that you can live. Uh, Psalm 1 talks about that. There's the way of the righteous, there's the way of the wicked. Uh, Romans talks about that. You can trust in the law or you can trust in Christ. Uh, We see that all throughout the Gospels. We see that all throughout the Old Testament. And nowhere do we see this contrasted so clearly in the Gospels, at least in my opinion, is Luke 18. And uh, again, I want to connect this back to where we're at at Job. Uh, But let's just wander through this together. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. Jesus told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Now, that's that's Dr. Luke. That's, That's the narrator's way of setting up this parable. And as you know, parables are very difficult to understand sometimes. And uh, I love parables like this that tell you what they're about. They tell you what it's about up front, so there's, there's no doubting what we're trying to understand from these verses. Uh, uh, and Luke tells us that the reason that Jesus is telling this parable is, that, is there were people who were walking around and they were trusting in who? Themselves regarding what? Their righteousness. Okay. That is one of the two ways Scripture says people can live. There's, there's no fence to sit on. There's no third option. There are two ways to live. You see it all over Scripture. Here they are. One is trusting in self that we are righteous. And we'll see the contrast, what the other option is, as the parable develops. I know you're familiar with this. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, a religious leader, an expert in the law, and the other, a tax gatherer. Um, Often Gentiles, but some of the really, really, really desperate Jews would go to be employed by Rome as a tax collector. And if you were a Jewish person... There was nothing worse. There was no lower position you could get into. Uh, The scum of the earth, as it were, in Jesus' day would be if you were a Jew and a tax collector because you were basically a traitor. You you had given into Rome. 
So on the one hand, you have uh, who everybody in Judaism looked to as the righteous religious person. This is the model. And then you've got the lowest person you can get to in Jewish society. Uh, That's a Jew who sold himself to Rome as a tax collector. And also, as you know, uh, tax collectors were not just tax collectors. Uh, The way they actually made their money was by adding to what Rome actually collected as taxes. They would add to that their own commissions. So they were essentially stealing from the people. Jesus said, these two men went up to the temple to pray. Verse 11, the Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. I am not like swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer. I fast twice a week and I pay tithes of all that I get. Now now tell me, what do you see in those verses? What, What do you see in this man's heart? Yes, he's stuck in the first person, isn't he? Yeah, you know, it's interesting, and those of you that have maybe heard this preached before, the, um, the, the preposition there can be taken different ways, um, but what almost everybody agrees on is he's not praying to God, okay? He's either praying for everybody to see, or he's praying uh, about himself or to himself, um, okay? What else do you see? Say that again. Okay. Oh, he's extolling his righteousness. Okay, sure. He's extolling his righteousness. Very good. Okay. What else do you see? Tony? Okay. We see a lot of pride here. Sure. What else? Okay, comparison to others. Someone else, I saw a hand go up there. Okay. Self-righteous people always have a list. Right? Because you've got to have something to point to. You've got to have some evidence. What's the evidence? I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Uh, fasting twice a week exceeded the requirement of the law. So he's saying, look, I'm doing more than the law requires. Okay, And Jesus tells us the heart of the matter. This is his heart, and this is how that gets manifested. When you're trusting in yourself, you'll have a focus on yourself. You'll tend to extol the things in your life that you think are commendable. Uh, There's obvious pride there. You'll compare yourself to... uh, Why does self-righteousness and comparing yourself to others go together? Yeah, because how I feel better about me is just find somebody who's not doing as well as I am, right? And and notice, uh, again, Dr. Luke tells us, um, Jesus tells this parable because people are trusting in themselves and viewing others with contempt. Those always go together. 
And like I said, there's always going to be a list of the works that I do. Okay. Two ways to live. The first way to live is to trust in yourself that you're righteous and to do as many good things as you can do to justify yourself. But then there's another man, the tax gatherer, who was standing some distance away. Um, the court, if you remember the temple layout, the, the court that, you know, there was, there was the area where only Gentiles could go, then there was the area where only women could go, and then there was the area that only Jewish men could go, and then you actually went in the temple proper to where only the priests could go. Do you remember that from your basic temple geography class that you had sometime, I hope? So they're in probably that area where only the Jewish men can go. And, and if, you, if you read the verse, you get the idea that the, the Pharisee is up as far forward as he can be. Uh, they're boasting in his righteousness, boasting in what he's done, praying to himself. The Pharisee, or the tax collector, is in the back of the place. Some commentators think that maybe he was even uh, not in the area where the Jewish men could go. He was standing some distance away. He was unwilling even to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Now tell me about this guy. Tell me about the other guy. Okay, we see humility. What else do you see? Okay, he, he's very much acknowledging his sin. And, and I would, I agree with that. I'd say it's even stronger than that. It's his only hope. His only hope is if God would be merciful to him. Um, you think about um, people that are hopeless, people like Ron who, who commit suicide or people that, that do all this. Um, they have no hope. And what this is saying is, that's true. We don't have any hope. Our only hope is if God will take us back. If God will somehow intervene and remove our guilt and remove our sin and reconcile us to himself. That's our only hope. We, we've got, and that's part of the point here, this doesn't do anything. Um, saying that I'm better than the next person is, is like, um, I don't know, you're both on the same ship and you're sinking and you're all going to die and you're saying, well, at least I'm better than that guy. Okay, you're both going to die. And he cries out. To, you see the humility. He, he wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. He's focused on himself, but in light of his sin, not in light of his righteousness. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for pointing that out. Um, the article is there. The. in an article par excellence pastor he's saying I am the man I am the chief of sinners 
Is he looking at all the other guys in the temple? I'm glad I'm not like him. I'm glad I'm not like him. You know, he says, I'm the worst one. It's a definite article. It's a definite article. Yeah, it's a definite article. Mm-hmm. And then there's this little word, be merciful, which is not a bad translation. I can't spell merciful. There we go. Someone who's read this, studied this before, what does that actually mean? Do you remember? It's not the normal word for mercy. In fact, you may have a marginal note there that says something to that. Here's what he's saying. Lord, <laughs> be propitious to me. Which you can see, <laughs> that's probably why I didn't translate you. What does that mean? What's propitiation? Satisfaction of what? Okay. Someone else? What's propitiation? It's satisfaction. Okay. All right. Propitiation. Theology 101, guys. We've got to get this. Propitiation is a sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God because of sin so it doesn't fall on me. Okay? Now, put that back into the text. And this guy understands a lot more than meets the eye. He understands that he's a sinner. We see that. He understands that his sin makes him liable to the righteous and good wrath of God because of his sin. He understands because he cries out, his only hope is if God will intervene in some way. And, and how is he going to intervene? He says, Lord, provide a sacrifice that will satisfy your wrath and take it away so it won't fall on me. That's my only hope. That's what he's asking for. You ready for this? He's asking for a substitute. He's asking for a sacrifice that God would provide something because he knows he knows there's nothing he can do about it. Okay? Do, do, you, do you see the difference here? And I, I, I wrote that in there, but let's do a, a, a complementary circle for this side, okay? He is trusting in Christ as his only hope. Okay. There's only two ways to live. We can trust in ourselves or we can trust in the Savior, the atoning sacrifice that the Lord provides. You say, well, which is the right one? I know you know the answer, but let's read the end of the, end of the text here. Verse 14, Jesus steps in as the commentator now, okay? He's told the story. Now he's going to give the interpretation. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, this man went down to his house, what does it say? 
justified rather than the other. What does justified mean? God declares the sinner not guilty but righteous because of a substitute. Okay? So which one went home righteous? This one did. Okay? Mark it, underline it, highlight it, star it, circle it. There are only two ways to live. There's only two things you can trust in. You can trust in Christ as your substitute, crying out for God for mercy. Or you can trust in yourself. Now, this is true for justification. It's true in conversion in terms of how we come to Christ. But are you ready for this? It's also true in sanctification. Uh, Terry read it just a couple weeks ago in his sermon in Galatians. We don't begin in faith and then change over to be sanctified by law. We don't do that. We, we don't say, I trust Jesus for my salvation, but I trust Keith for my sanctification. It's not how it goes. And you know what? It's so easy to do, isn't it? We, we have a very... I don't know. You, you ever driven a car on bald tires? You ever driven on ice? Remember that ice storm we had a couple years ago? And you just barely touched the accelerator and your car's pointed that way, the tires are pointed that way, you hit the gas and you go... And you go, whoa, I didn't want to go that way. That's what the Christian life is like. It is so easy to slide over from this perspective over here. And part of the reason I wanted to take you here is because when we see ourselves doing some of these things, you know what that is? That is God's gracious warning system to tell us that in our sanctification we have slid from over here to over here. Okay. Now, please turn back to Job chapter 19. Why are we doing all this? Because our friend, Mr. Job, is in this very same place. He is in this very same place. Let me develop this for you from last time. By the way, I don't think any of that was in your notes. That's, that's for free. Look at Job chapter 19. This is where we left off last time, verse 25. He says, And as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth, even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. Okay. Now, if you weren't here last time, let's review a little bit where we were. Uh, what does this mean? Well, the word redeemer, as we talked about last time, is a technical phrase in the Old Testament. It's a technical term and title. Redeemer refers to a person responsible for aiding extended family members who are in danger. And we saw several different um, spheres where that happens. In the case of someone being bought into slavery, someone who owed a great debt, uh, someone who had been unjustly killed and, and there needed to be... Um, 
justice served in that or in the case that we're probably most familiar with in the case of someone being a widow and being redeemed, so to speak, as was the case with Ruth and Boaz. Uh, Job is going to designate God as his redeemer. God, uh, Job says God is the one to plead his case. And this is very important. When we think about redeemer, in the New Testament, redeemer almost always kind of uh, settles on this definition right here. Someone to redeem me from slavery. The, the metaphor of redemption in the New Testament almost always means someone who will free me from bondage to slavery. And in the context of salvation, sin is the taskmaster, right? I am in bondage to sin. Christ comes and redeems me from the sin. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free, as the, as the hymn goes, right? And that's what it's cluing in on here. Which is why we can be prone to misunderstand what it means here in Job. The scriptures don't always talk about redemption being a freedom from slavery, but all these other contexts. In the context of Job, it's a legal term. A redeemer is somebody to intervene in a legal situation. You say, well, what does that look like? Uh, well, before we do that, we'll talk about living. Living just emphasizes that even if he should die, his redeemer will survive him and be able to restore his honor. Um, this is all review from last time, okay? At the last refers to the day when God will vindicate Job and bring his case to a close. So how does this work? Redeemer is really uh, someone who comes to give the definitive evidence in a court case. Okay, so you've got a court case, trying to figure out who's, uh, if, if the um, uh, person is guilty or not, and um, all of a sudden, they call a new witness and the witness comes in and the witness gives that evidence and that evidence determines the whole case. It's the basis of the outcome of the case. What Job is saying is God is going to be that person to come and give that final evidence that will vindicate me and show me to be innocent in the court. Take his stand, again, is the context of legal testimony in court. On the earth either refers to God appearing in the dust, which is the literal translation, or more generally just coming to the earth. After my skin is destroyed, remember we talked about that, the word destroyed, it, it sounds like um, you know, he's dead, that's not what it means. It just refers more to the, the destruction of his skin based on his bodily ailments. And from my flesh I, I will see God is Job's conviction that God will come out of hiding and that he will see him before he dies. Okay, So Job's hope is that before he dies, God's going to show himself, he's going to come into court, take the witness stand, and say, here's the evidence, Job is really not guilty, and he will be acquitted of all charges. These verses seem to indicate Job's conviction that God will eventually reveal himself to Job, will allow his case to be brought against him. Furthermore, God will take the witness stand in the courtroom, redeem Job by testifying of his innocence, and finally, vindicate Job, announcing an innocent verdict. And remember, last time we saw that because the whole context of chapter 19 is Job wanting to do what with God? What, what does he want to do in chapter 19? Do you remember? He wants to plead his case and take him to court. Okay. Now, 
thinking about Luke 18, let me show you two pictures. Let's say this is the witness stand. And remember, I'm a pastor, not an artist, so don't laugh at my pictures, okay? So here's Job. Here's Job down here. He's on trial. And what Job envisionings, envisions happening is God comes and takes the witness stand. And God gives evidence that Job is innocent. Because, as Job has said many times, Job's righteous. Okay? If we were to take what he says in verses 25 and 26... That's what he's saying. He's saying, I know that I have a Redeemer. His name is God. And I know that he's going to come and take the witness stand. Let's just add this here, witness stand. And because I'm righteous, God is going to finally appear, take the witness stand, give evidence that announce that I'm really innocent, and then I will be free and acquitted. Okay? Remember that? That's what he's saying. Now... What do you think about that? I know that's probably not what you thought the verse meant. That's okay. That's okay. There's lots of verses in Scripture where that happens. Now that you understand what it means, what do you think about that? Okay. He's like the Pharisee because he's depending on his own righteousness. What else do you think? David. You know, that's a really good question because, you know, I've, I've read these courtroom verses over and over and over, and what it seems like is that he wants God to come and take the witness stand and give the evidence, and then God's going to get up and go to the judge's bench and pronounce the not guilty verdict. That's what it seems like. Now, obviously, the friends are there in the audience, and he wants to show them who's right and who's wrong too. But most of the time, I think the emphasis is on being acquitted by God. You know, I, think, I think surely you can see other cases where he wants to show the friends as well, but ultimately it's going to be the Lord. Somebody else, what do you think about this? Is this a model to follow? I showed you this last week, but I want to show you this again because this is so important that we get this. Turn to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. I, I told you that um, this, this word, redeemer, can mean many different things. Okay. In the context of Job, it almost comes to mean an advocate. Someone who's coming to plead the case, to say, I have evidence to show that this man is not guilty. Look at 1 John chapter 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you. And he's just talked about if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, the truth is not in us. That's the context of this. 
My little children, I'm writing, to the, writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, and I love his name here, the righteous. Okay? Now, notice the contrast. This is as glaring as Luke 18 is, okay? There is a witness stand. There sure is. There it is. And Jesus Christ is going to take that witness stand. He is. That's what it's saying. And we really do have a problem with sin. Here's us. And what Jesus is going to do on the witness stand will lead to our being declared not guilty. That's true. How's he going to do it? It says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate, a paraclete, someone who comes alongside to help. But see, the reason he's the advocate, the reason he can bring it to a place where he pronounces us not guilty is not because we're righteous, but because who's righteous? Because <laughs> he's righteous. Okay. See, th- this, is, this, is, this is so intrinsic to the gospel. Yes, Jesus takes the witness stand. Yes, he pronounces us not guilty. But it's not because he was wrong and we were right. It's because we are wrong, but he's a substitute. God made him who knew no sin, how's it go? To be sin in our place so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. See, I do have sin, don't I? Christ gets my sin, I get his righteousness. And that's how Christ can pronounce that I am not guilty. There are two ways to live, aren't there? There's where Job was at, saying God's going to come, and he's going to finally admit that he's wrong about me. And he's going to pronounce me innocent because I'm righteous, and my trust... My tr- Where's Job's trust? His trust is in himself. The scriptures say that because we're sinful, we can trust in ourselves all we want. Doesn't change anything. Our only hope is if we have a substitute who comes, who sits on that witness stand and does testify. But he testifies of his own work on our behalf. He says, Father, I took away their sin. I atoned for it. I did exactly what the tax collector wanted. I made propitiation for that sinner. I I provided a sacrifice that satisfied and took away the wrath of God. That's what I did, Father. And furthermore, he testifies to his own Father that I have taken my very righteousness, I have credited it to the account of the sinner, so that person is really not guilty. Not guilty because of substitution. And the hope of the sinner is not to trust in himself, 
the help of the sinner is he's trusting in his substitute. He's trusting in his Savior. Okay? Um, that got reduced to about three minutes last week. And I thought that's too important to, uh, um, to just breeze over. Do you, do you see this? Our friend Job is not in a good place. He's not in a good place. As commendable as he is at the beginning of his life, the trials and tribulations have led him to a place where he is trusting in himself instead of trusting in his Savior. Um, and that's not a good place for him to be. Okay, You guys see that? I know we love this verse. I know that's not what we want the verse to mean. But actually... Actually, understanding what it really means, I think, is a lot more helpful. Because if we're honest, we struggle with this? Do we slide from here to here in our sanctification? Is it real easy when we're being attacked, when we're going through a trial, when we're going through circumstances to say, I know I haven't done anything wrong? And to, and, and, and to, and we know that we know it's wrong, but we actually get to a place where we operate out of that trust. The reason we say the things we do and do the things we do is because we really are operating out of this, this premise. I'm doing the right thing. I'm okay. I'm not the guilty one here. I'm not the one with the problem. I'm not the one with the issue. That person is. We call this what it is. It's a false gospel. There's only two ways to live, to trust in Christ or to trust in self. The broad road that leads to destruction, the narrow road that leads to life. Pick, pick your metaphor in Scripture. The house built on sand, the house built on the rock. They're all there. The way of the righteous that's planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, its leaf doesn't wither. Whatever he does, he prospers. But the wicked are like the chaff which the wind blows away. There's only two ways to live. Now, go back to Job. Chapter 21 ends. Uh, Zophar gives his last speech. Job responds. And in chapter 22, round 3 begins. And this is very interesting. Like round two, in round three, what we're really interested in is what are the new things that we see. We see all the same things in chapter of round one and round two. Look at chapter 22 as Eliphaz starts in on his third and final speech. Then Eliphaz, the Temanite, responded, Can a vigorous man be of use to God, or a wise man be useful to himself? Is there any pleasure to the Almighty? If you are righteous, 
or profit if you make your ways perfect? Is it because of your reverence that he reproves you? That he enters into judgment against you? Do you hear the sarcasm there? Is it because you're so reverent, Job, that he's reproving you? Is, is it all this, uh, uh, your, your godliness that he's entering into judgment against you? And here it is again. Is not your wickedness great and your iniquities without end? Can you imagine, can you imagine going down to Harris Hospital, finding somebody in the ICU whose skin is falling off, whose eyes are swollen shut, who has infections all over his body, who's in constant, continual pain, going up to that person, sticking your finger in their nose and saying, is not your wickedness great and your iniquities without end? It's exactly what he's doing to his friend. Now, there's a time. (laughs) There's a time even with suffering people to talk to them about their sin. But I think we can see that Eliphaz is not in the frame of spirit that he needs to be in to have a conversation like that. And then he's going to do, and I want you to see this, he's going to do something that we have not seen him do yet. Okay, He is going to start to speculate regarding Job's sin. Job doesn't want to admit it. Job's in denial. Well, maybe if I give him some possibilities, that'll help him to come clean on this. Now, listen to this. This is crazy. Listen to this. Verse 6, You have taken pledges of your brothers without cause, and stripped men naked, taken their clothes. To the weary, you've given no water to drink. From the hungry, you have withheld bread. The earth belongs to mighty man, and the honorable man dwells in it. But you have sent widows away empty. You, and the strength of orphans has been crushed by you. Therefore, snares surround you. Sudden dread terrifies you. Or darkness so that you cannot see. And an abundance of water covers you. Whoa. Do you keep a record of your friend's sins? <laughs> well, and maybe these guys qualify as his enemies now. Do you see what he just did? They've gone from accusing him of sin to accusing his children of sinning to flat out calling him a liar to going round and round and round and round and round. Great wickedness, great sin, great iniquity. Now they're giving him lists. Well, Job, I've seen it. You, you haven't taken care of widows like you, have, like you should, have you? you? You haven't taken care of orphans like you should. I know some people that were hungry and thirsty that you didn't take care of. What is this? Um... It's amazing. You know, Proverbs says, um, abandon the quarrel before it breaks out. What's the, do you remember, anyone know the first part of that? I, I blanked on the first part of it. Isn't it like there's a whole bunch of water behind a dam that comes gushing forth, so abandon the quarrel before it breaks out? 
Do you see the wisdom of that? Do you see what happens when you start off trying to help somebody and they're not seeing it your way? And you push and you push and you push. They're responding in an ungodly way. You're being ungodly. Proverbs says, abandon the quarrel. (laughs) Wave off. Go around, right? And we see them spiral into even more um, wickedness there. There's another thing we see in this chapter that's new. And that is over in chapter 24. Chapter 23, we see Job wanting to plead his case again against God as Job responds. He says, Oh, that I might knew, oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat. Verse 4 of chapter 23, I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. He's right where, he, where he's always been, right? I want to take God to court. I'm going to show him who's right. Look down at verse 10 because I know you're going to ask me about this. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. My foot has held fast to his path. I don't take that the way Peter uses it. Peter says the testing of your faith is good because after God has allowed you to go through that, it shows that your faith is real. That's a good thing. That's a good reason for trials. But can you see by context, that's not what he's saying here. This is one more way of saying he's innocent. It's one more way of saying, you know what? I know I'm innocent. I know I'm gold. And uh, when this whole thing is over, everybody will know it. Look at verse 24. Why are times not stored up by the Almighty? And why do those who know him not see his days? Some remove the landmarks. They seize and devour flocks. They drive away the donkeys of the orphans. They take the widow's ox for a pledge. They push the needy aside from the road. The poor of the land are made to hide themselves altogether. Behold, as wild donkeys in the wilderness, they go forth seeking food in their activity. As bread for their children in the desert, they harvest their fodder in the field. They glean the vineyard of the wicked. They spend the night naked without clothing and have no covering against the cold. They're wet with the mountain rains and they hug the rock for want of a shelter. Others snatch the orphan from the breast and against the poor they take a pledge. They cause the poor to go about naked without clothing and they take away sheaves from the hungry. I think he was watching the evening news here, right? He's all the problems in the world. He's articulating wicked people do wicked things. Innocent people suffer is what he's saying. Verse 12, from the city men, uh, men groan and the souls of the wounded cry out. Verse 12, highlight it. Yet God does not pay attention to folly. Job says, I watched the news last night. I see a couple of things. The wicked get away with wickedness every day. Innocent people like orphans and widows, they starve, they go without houses, they go without shelter, people take advantage of them, and God doesn't care. He continues on in that light. Verse 14, The murderer arises at dawn. He kills the poor and the needy. At night he is a thief. The eye of the adulterer waits for twilight, saying, No one will see me. 
Look at verse 18. They are as insignificant on the surface of the water. Their portion is cursed on the earth. Talking about the the innocent. They do not turn toward the vineyards. Drought and heat consume the snow water. So does Sheol to those who have sinned. A mother will forget him. The worm feeds sweetly till he is remembered no more. And wickedness will be like a broken tree. Listen to this. He changes to the second person. Very important that you see this. He's just talking about all this stuff. Then he pulls in that little word, you. And he points his fingered heavenward to God and he says this to God. He, I'm sorry, that isn't second person yet. That's still third person. He wrongs the barren woman and does no good for the widow. But he drags off the valiant by his power. He rises, but no one has assurance of life. He provides them with security and they are supported. And his eyes are on their ways. He says, God does no good for the widow, but he seems to support the wicked. What do you do with that? Well, let me tell you what Job just did. He went one step further in accusing God. Now he's saying, God isn't just being unjust to him, God is being unjust to others. And we see him spiral even further down. Well, we need to put a comma in our notes there. And uh, we'll come back next time. Let's pray.